We are in our third week of a study of uh, the life and times of Joseph. We're in the last third of the book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 39 today. If you want to turn your Bibles there or your devices or whatever you're using. And uh, I'm going to pray for us and, and we'll dive in. Father God, we uh, thank you for uh, bringing us here this morning. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you how it has not just informed us, but it has changed us. It has transformed us into uh, your children who know you, love you, and who love to hear from you. And Father, I pray for us this morning as we come to the 39th chapter of Genesis. And I know um, there is uh, a word here we need to hear. And I'm also um, duly reminded that I'm not capable of uh, transmitting that word or impacting hearts. I can't do it. Only you can do it. And so I pray now that your spirit would be among us. And I pray that um, your spirit will deliver uh, words of life to our hearts. And I pray for us that we, would, uh, that we would lean into your word today, that we would give it our attention and our focus, that we would brush aside the things that might distract us today and be holy and completely yours in this time as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Well, I was, uh, about eight days ago, I was uh, driving down Highway 14, and I had a little situation, actually. Uh, we live in Washougal, and so I got on the, um, on the far east side to get in the roundabout there, because nothing's as fun. Like a roundabout, got in the roundabout, and in front of me, a couple of vehicles in front of me, was this big, jacked-up uh, uh, Dodge Ram pickup truck, big thing. And in the back of the truck was, he had like a washer and a dryer pushed back up against the cab and just filled with like furniture. And so I think it was moving day in Washougal. And, uh, but, but on top of the washer and dryer, I don't, there was something up there. I don't know what it was. It was this big white kind of circular thing. It was about the size of a washing machine. I couldn't tell what it was made out of. It was white. I couldn't see through it. And it had an opening on the top. And there was like stuff sticking out, like some poles and some other parts. And I, so I was, I was trying to get close enough uh, to f- see if I could figure out what it was, but not so close that, uh, well, you know, other things happened. And so I, I kind of had my distance. There's a few cars between us, but I just couldn't figure out what it was. And so we were, we're driving down, went through the second uh, roundabout and gets into two lanes. And so I thought, well, this is good. I'll be in the left lane. I mean, I never do that, but I'll get in the left lane. I'll get close enough. I'm really intrigued to see what that thing is. But uh, the guy in the left lane, was going as slow as the guys in the right lane. And so I didn't really make any progress. I mean, I was totally cool with it. And then um, we got down to kind of where it narrows down to go over the bridge and everybody's, you know, coming together. And so I think there was probably about seven or eight cars all kind of making their way. And uh, the truck was still a few cars in front of me. And so I was just like, I don't know what, what, what it is. I was kind of staring at it. And then I started looking as we were kind of narrowing down. And I thought, you know, is that thing tied down? And then I realized, no, it was not because it started coming off the truck. Now, uh, there's a few cars between me and, and the truck. And I, as soon as I saw it, you know, you remember those things in slow motion. It starts coming down and I'm like, well, now we'll find out what it is. And uh, it's coming down and I, I hit the brakes and, but there's cars everywhere. So you know how it is. You're trying to be careful. And it comes off the top flies out of the back of the truck and when it hits the the ground it just explodes and and thousands of pieces going everywhere and again I don't know if it was glass or plastic or what it was there were metal rods and shrapnel and you know weapons of mass destruction it's like kind of going in every direction on highway 14 as everyone's trying to narrow down and it was actually kind of a beautiful thing because all of us slowed down and swerved and I you know I didn't hit anybody or didn't hit any of the shrapnel and um and cars were just, so cars were like honking their horns and flashing their lights because we hit the bridge and this guy's going down and I'm like, well, you know, he can't stop. He's on the bridge. He'll get across the bridge. He'll get off the exit, turn around and clean up, clean up his mess. And as we're going across the bridge, I'm like, that guy's actually speeding up. And then the washer and dryer are looking a little wobbly. And uh, so I'm keeping my distance. We get across the bridge and there's the exit there and he oh no, he's not stopping. He guns it and he's out of there. And so, you know, first I'm like, maybe he didn't see, but oh, there's no way he didn't see. There was a lot of, uh, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Like, remember when we did walk through a few weeks ago, hand motions? There's a lot of hand motions going on, uh, but it wasn't like this. And um, he had to know, but he wasn't, there was no way. He 
was just going. He was gone. And uh, I looked in my rear mirror and you could see people were pulling over. And, you know, when I came back a few minutes later, I saw people pull over. They were cleaning up the mess. And I was thinking to myself, because, you know, I'm always looking for a good illustration. And I thought, you know, people in life are a lot like that, right? There's some people, they're just going down the road of life, the Highway 14 of life, and uh, they don't tie down their load, and stuff's just flying out, and they're just leaving a trail of destruction, and, you know, people honking their horns, and everyone's, you know, pulling over and cleaning up their mess. You you know, people like that, like, they just go through life, creating this mess. They never look in the rearview mirror. If they do, they don't care, and and they just leave a, a trail of a mess everywhere they go. And then there's another kind of person, maybe you meet every now and then, And that's the people who uh, everywhere they go and everyone they meet, they leave every situation better than when they went in. They leave every person more blessed than when they met them. And um, unfortunately, we probably meet more of the other person than that. And the reality is none of us are really just one or the other, uh, but we're somewhere along that spectrum, right? Somewhere along and hopefully more to the side of being a blessing uh, to the people that were around. But I was thinking about it because I was thinking about Joseph. And we're looking at the life of Joseph and clearly Joseph is a guy who's about as far over as you can possibly get to be the guy who everywhere he goes, he blesses. Everyone he meets, he blesses. And we've seen that already, but we're really going to see it today and in the weeks to come. And this is significant because as we mentioned to you before, Joseph comes out of a really dysfunctional uh, family situation. Uh, his dad was Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And we know, we won't get into all the details this morning, but we know that Jacob had four wives. Because uh, if, you know, one is good, then I don't know. So he has four wives. But his, his favorite wife, the wife he loved, um, that's a whole other story, is Rachel. And uh, there's 12 sons between these. So we've got one dad, and we've got three moms, and we've got 12 sons. And that would be dysfunctional enough, and it certainly was. But then there was a favorite son whose name was Joseph. And, you know, it wasn't any fault of his, but he's the favorite son. And there's a whole host of things that go with him being the favorite son. They all know that he's dad's favorite son, so they already kind of hold it against him. And then dad makes him a coat, you know, that no one else gets, and then they don't like that. And then Joseph has these dreams that are given to him by God, that that all his brothers are going to someday bow down to him. They don't like that. So really, they hate their brother. They're jealous of him. They hate him. They don't like him. They're looking for a way uh, to get rid of him. Eventually, they decide they want to kill him, right? So if you, again, you may have a dysfunctional family and Thanksgivings may be weird, but I don't know how many times people come with murder on their thoughts. And, you know, so they want to murder their brother. They've, they've had the opportunity they throw him into a pit. They verbally uh, and, and physically abuse him. They throw him into a pit. They're going to leave him for dead, but then they see this uh, Ishmaelite uh, cavern coming along and a caravan, and they're like, hey, we should, we should make some money off him. So they sell him into slavery. He's taken into Egypt, and there he's sold into a house as a slave um, without recourse, uh, even though he's an innocent person, seemingly abandoned by God and abandoned by family. And I, you know, I've said this before, Joseph has plenty of reasons to be angry and to be bitter and, uh, and maybe just to give up, right? Like, what's, what's the use? I didn't do anything wrong, and yet here I am in this terrible situation. But that, those aren't the choices he makes. He makes a different choice. He, he chooses to trust God. And we'll see this all along the way. In the hardest, most difficult places, he still chooses to trust God. And because he trusts God, and this is key, because he trusts God, it allows God to use him as a blessing to other people. See, when we trust God, it allows us to follow God in such a way that even in difficult times, we can actually be a channel of God's blessings. Joseph knows that his life is not just about him. There are much bigger things at play here. And so as we enter into chapter 39, I want to start by just reviewing uh, the first six verses that we looked at at the end of last week's sermon to just again set up where we are. And I want to talk a little bit about this success of Joseph that we'll see again and again and kind of the secret of his success. So at the beginning of chapter 39 and verse 1, we read this. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So Joseph is taken to Egypt. He's uh, sold as a slave into Potiphar's house. Potiphar's man who uh, is, is powerful, is influential. And as we'll see, it's a house that will be filled with opportunity. Verse 2. 
Now the Lord was with Joseph. This is an important phrase. We'll see this come up again and again. And he became a successful man. And he was in the, in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So being put in this new uh, situation where he's a slave, we're told he probably began by doing chores outside. Maybe he was digging ditches and uh, then maybe he moved up to, you know, working in the fields with crops. Maybe at some point uh, he was given some administrative work outside. But he's, everything that he does is successful and Potiphar knows it and thinks, hey, that guy ought to be in the house. And so he, he moves into the house and he's doing duties that are in the house. This is a huge step forward for him. It shows that Potiphar really trusts him. And so Joseph is a successful slave. I, now I said this last week, and I know you can just hear it and let it move on, but I want to say it again. Joseph was a successful slave. And by and large, I would say that our culture basically rejects the very idea of being a successful slave or anything that feels like that. Our culture tends to say, if you want to be successful, first get out of your difficult situation, first get out of being a slave, and then you can be successful. First get out of that job you don't like, first get out of that relationship you like, you don't like, first get out of that thing you don't like, and then you can be successful. But here is, here is Joseph, and he is successful as a slave, in the midst of his slavery, because God is bigger than our circumstances. And so you ask the question, would it be possible for someone to be a slave and everything that comes with that, and yet somehow be successful? And of course, what we'd say, well, yeah, the answer is yes, because we're reading it right here. But what about some other things? Could a person be, say, unemployed, wanting to be employed, but unemployed and be successful? Right? Well, first let me get a job, and then I can be successful. How about, uh, could somebody be in a difficult job, a hard job, a job they don't like, and yet be a successful person in that job? Could someone be ill, sick? Could someone have cancer and yet be successful? I mean, just asking some obvious questions. Could a, could a person be unpopular? Could a person be poor? Could a person be single? Could a person be married and, and yet be successful? See, Joseph is a slave and he's successful. The key to Joseph's success is that the Lord was with him. In fact, it tells us four times in this chapter, four times that the Lord was with him. So we could say that the key to his success is theological. It's that God was the cause of his success. Even when he was betrayed, even when he was separated from his family, but, but Joseph had a part to play. Don't miss this. Joseph had a part to play, and that part to play was that he was to trust God. Even when things were tough, he was to trust God. Even when he was betrayed, even when he was separated from his family, he had a role to play. That role was simply to trust God. Even when he was a slave, even when it looked like he had been abandoned by everyone, Joseph made a different choice. He didn't choose bitterness. He didn't choose giving up. He chose to trust God. And that trust shapes the way that he lives into a person that, quite frankly, is the kind of person we don't meet that often. Somebody in the midst of terrible circumstances and yet a blessing to everyone around him. Verse 4, so Joseph found favor in the sight and attended him, and that is Potiphar. And Potiphar made him an overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed, there it is again, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So Joseph becomes this channel of God's blessing to the people around him while he's a slave. I know I keep saying that. I don't know if you've ever, have you ever been in a situation where Maybe uh, somebody is making your life tough or somebody's making your life difficult and you're choosing to trust God and God keeps using you to bless the other person. Have you ever had that? And they're getting blessed and they're getting blessed and they're getting blessed and your life is still hard and not changing. Like how do you feel about that when other people just get, they keep getting blessed from you and you feel like where's my blessing and yet this is where Joseph is. And Potiphar realizes that the best way to manage his affairs is to give everything to Joseph because everything Joseph does succeeds. And don't miss this. Joseph's work ethic, um, his, his integrity, and his character 
do not go unnoticed, although they don't seem to get rewarded in the way that we would probably like. And that maybe you feel like that at times. Maybe you feel like you've been doing all the right things, saying all the right things, making all the right choices, and yet maybe you're not getting noticed. Maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's home, maybe it's work or wherever it is. You feel like you're making all the right choices and not getting noticed. And I think part of the story of Joseph reminds us to be patient and to remember that Joseph was not an overnight success. But Joseph was a man who did his work as unto the Lord. And I would just say this, we will always get noticed by the one who matters when we do our work with integrity and as unto the Lord. It may not come at at the time we think it should come. It may not come in the way that we think it should come, but it will always, your integrity will always get noticed by the one who matters most. And so Joseph is successful and we'll see his success just grow and grow in the future because the Lord is with him. He's a man who has integrity, but when we walk through chapter 39, we also notice that sometimes integrity can be a dangerous thing. Now, last week and so far this morning, we've kind of walked up to chapter 39, the first part of verse 6. But the second part of verse 6 is kind of a hinge in this story when it says this. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, there are only two people in the Bible that are described this way. One is Joseph and the other is his mother, Rachel. These are two people who are described in this way. And I, I think, you know, sometimes when we read this, we think, well, that must have been awesome for Joseph and for Rachel because I think we live in a culture that is desperate to be, you know, good looking, to be attractive. I should use a word like this, right? Because it's kind of a moving target what that is and what that looks like. But I would say that our culture by and large is obsessed with being physically attractive. And there are whole industries around being physically attractive. I, and in our culture, many people work at it. Uh, you know, they'll starve themselves for it. They'll, they'll strive for it. They'll work for it. Uh, they'll pay for it. Um, they'll get coaching for it. They'll get surgery for it. But the reality is, and I just want to say this, and I, this probably feels like a little bit of a tangent, but I'm going to go there anyways. I just think the irony is that being attractive in our culture has always been a rather dangerous thing just as it was for Joseph. Because culture tends to prey on the beautiful because our culture is just shallow that way. And I've also noticed over the years and that, that most people uh, don't have the character or the moral grounding to withstand such pressure. Now, obviously, all of you are incredibly attractive and I'm not talking about you because you are completely morally grounded. I'm just saying other people who are beautiful and attractive are rarely, rarely capable of withstanding the kind of attention that our culture often brings. I was reading this week a quote from uh, a theologian named Drax. I don't, maybe you, you've heard of him. He's a great man of the faith. Um, it's, uh, there's a, a, mo a movie called Guardians of the Galaxy 2 which I might or might not have been watching this week as I was uh, studying. And um, there's this scene. So this scene was made for the sermon, I'm just saying. Um, and so Drax, who isn't probably the most attractive person in the world, is talking to Mantis. And he keeps telling her how ugly she is. And at one point they have this conversation. This is what he says. He tells her, you are horrifying to look at. Right? But that's a good thing. It's better to be ugly. When you're ugly and someone loves you, you know they love you for who you are. Beautiful people never know who to trust. Okay, so that's a tad bit cynical, all right? But let me just say this. Before I came to Gateway, I served as a youth pastor at several churches. And one of the things that I saw over the years that broke my heart is how often uh, there would be somebody in the youth group who would be a beautiful, again, however culture defines that, a beautiful teenager in the youth group for whom it rarely went well. Because they would often attract the attention of people who didn't have their best, uh, you know, interests at heart. Um, heartbreaking situations, people who were not prepared to handle the kind of attention that being attractive brought. In fact, it was so um, heartbreaking that 
when Christy and I had kids, I used to literally pray with my wife. I would pray, Father God, I hope our children are homely. Like just like, I would pray they were homely looking kids. And of course, you know, as a dad, I would say God didn't answer my prayer. But that was, that was my prayer because I just didn't want my kids to have to go through some of that stuff. Now, so here's Joseph, right? Joseph's looks get him unwanted attention. So it shouldn't be a surprise. It's the world that we live in. Verse 7. Now after a time, his master's wife, that's Potiphar's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. She's, she doesn't want to take a nap with Joseph. She wants to have a sexual relationship with him. And this is a woman who is probably used to getting what she wants. Especially in this setting. Joseph is a slave. So he has no rights. And sexual promiscuity was a normal part of slaveholder homes. It was just expected that if it was offered by a, sla- by a slaveholder, that it would be accepted by the slave. Because giving in to Miss Potiphar in that culture could change the trajectory of your life. Uh, it was called sleeping your way to the top. It's a strategy for getting ahead in life that apparently is still around today. And I, it, it's hard for us to understand the pressure that Joseph would have been facing because he is a young man who has no rights and no way out of his slavery, no way out in his power. And the potential for upward mobility that a sexual alliance could mean for him was gigantic. Oftentimes it would mean that you could get to a better place in that house. Sometimes it would lead to uh, you being set free. Now add to all of this the fact that Joseph is 17 or 18 years old. All right, let's let's just think about 17 and 18 year old young guys. I don't mean in our church because obviously they're way above average just like you're all above average in your looks. But I mean really you've got a 17, 18 year old young man with hormones raging who's been betrayed by his family. Who's relocated to a foreign country where he doesn't speak the language. He is alone. He has, I, I mean every reason to think he deserves a break. Have you ever felt like that? Like, man, this has been a hard year. This has been a hard month. Nothing's gone my way. I know this whole thing sounds sketch, but I think it's an opportunity for me. Like, I, I deserve a break. He's probably craving acceptance from somebody. Intimacy, he's primed for seduction. Verse 8, but he refused. And he said to his master's wife, and, and listen to his, his, his reasoning. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in this house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. And he's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything, notice, anything from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph refused to sin against uh, both his, his master and against God. His reasoning is this. What kind of person is given a gift from someone, uh, or given a gift from God, and then turns around and abuses that gift and sins against the giver. Now, of course, we know the answer. That's, that's the thrust of every sin that we've ever committed, right? Is that God has given us a gift that we have abused and used against him. But in this situation, he, he's just saying, what kind of person does that? Well, I don't know, but I'm not that kind of person. One writer put it this way, because Joseph was faithful in all his relationships, He could resist being unfaithful in this relationship. This story is not just about sexual fidelity. Joseph's life was a web of moral accountability. He saw his moral life as unified, as an integrated whole. We must understand that little sins pave the way to big sins and that Joseph is on no such path. I think often, if not always, the sins of the body begin as sins of the mind. Right? That what we do with our body is always a result of what we have predetermined in our mind to do. And Joseph understands this. When he says, how can I do this great wickedness? What he's saying, notice how quickly he answers it. Notice how quickly he labels it. He doesn't have to say like, well, huh, okay. Well, let me flow chart this thing and think about this, Mrs. Potiphar. Right? He just instantly says, well, this is wickedness. How could he make that claim? Because he's thought about this. Right? Because she keeps proposing him and he keeps turning him down. He, he's been thinking. He's been praying. He's been imagining in his mind. He's been playing in his mind. I'll be in the house. Mrs. Potiphar makes a play. What am I going to do? I'm going to run. Right. 
Can you see how often do we prepare ourselves to make the wrong choice because we keep playing it through wrongly in our mind? Oh, well, I'll tell them, or I'll do this, or I'll do that. Instead, he has thought this through. This is wickedness, and I couldn't possibly do this. He's thought it through. In his mind, he sees it as wicked. And this thinking that it's wicked will keep him from acting in a wicked way. And Joseph knows, and he lets us know in this, that all sin is first of all against God. David says this in the Psalms. He says, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before he's talking to God. It's ever before you, God. And against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So back in verse 10, it tells us this. Now, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, so this is incessant. She just keeps coming after him every day. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her or even to be with her. So wisely, he refuses to lie with her, but he even refuses to be with her, which has the idea of just being alone in a room with her. And he knew that God had blessed him, but he needed to remain in that zone of blessing. And so he continues day after day after day to turn her down. Verse 11, but one day, when he went into the house to do his work, because that's where he did his work, and none of the men of the house, it would have been both relatives of hers and just people who worked in the house, uh, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment. And she said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he got out of the house. Why did he do it? Because that's what he had predetermined to do. Because that's what he had pictured in his mind, doing it, not giving in, but running, but fleeing. And Joseph might have seen this coming, but there was little he could do because he had to work in the house. But what he could do is control his reaction. And his reaction was premeditated and it was to run. It was to flee. It was to get away from sin. Not to be around it, not to entertain it, not to flow chart it, but just to run. In 1 Corinthians 10, we're told this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Sometimes we're tempted to think in a temptation in a temptation situation like, well, no one's dealt like this like I've dealt like this. Paul says now there's, there's millions, maybe billions of people who have gone through what you're going through. So don't, don't fool yourself here, all right? Listen to what he says. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it, a door, a window, a, you know, some place to, to, to escape from this. Notice God doesn't promise to remove every temptation, but he does promise a way out of every temptation. But, and this is important, you have to trust God for it. And when he gives you the way out, you got to take it. Back to our story, verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and that he had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and she said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. The he there is, is Potiphar, is her, her husband. So she begins by, by gathering all the men of the house that are there. She gets them together and then notice how she uses the first person plural. So she's implying that Joseph has victimized all of them. So they're all victims in the house. It's victimhood again. And, and she's making allies in the house. She's trying to get everybody on her side before her husband gets home. And notice her prejudicial words. She, she calls him a Hebrew. Like she points that out. He's a foreigner. He's, he's not one of us. And then she says, and he came uh, to me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So she's got the guys together and she says, you can't believe believe what just happened and you're all on my side because she's setting the stage for her husband when he gets home. Verse 17, and when he got home, she told her husband the same story saying, the Hebrew servant, again pointing out that he's not one of them, whom you have brought, notice that, who you have brought, how did he get in the house? You brought him in the house, husband, and, and brought him among us. And he came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And so she's trying to manipulate, trying to guilt her husband by inferring that this was all his fault. It was his fault for bringing this foreigner into their house. It was his fault for uh, giving him authority in the house. And she's just, she's playing everyone uh, for her own sinful actions, right? She's trying to control the situation. And in verse 19, it says, as soon as his master, that is Potiphar, heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Right? Husbands, when we're 
If our wife comes to us and says, somebody mistreated me, guys, we're going to ramp up pretty quick, right? And so that's what he's doing. He's being manipulated, though. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. The irony here is that Joseph is in this situation because he refused to betray Potiphar. Right? He was the most loyal person to Potiphar in the story, and yet he's the one who ends up being punished. Now, an interesting thing to note here is this. Apparently, Potiphar was not completely convinced by his wife for a couple reasons. In that culture, if a slave had done what he was accused of doing, we're, we know that in Egyptian culture, you're just put to death. There's no jury. There's no trial. You're owned by the master anyways. You are just put to death on the spot. But Joseph isn't put to death. He's put in prison. Why is he put into prison? In fact, not only is he put into prison, but he's put into the king's prison. And this is, this is actually quite important as we go on in the story. And scholars, when they look at the Hebrew, they'll tell you it's unclear who Potiphar's anger is, is connected to. It might be connected to Joseph, but it might be connected grammatically to his wife. What would that mean? It would mean that he knows his wife's lying. But because she's made her case before everyone, there's nothing he can do to save face, right? But to back his wife and to have Joseph put into prison. Not put to death, but put into prison. And this brings us to the last part of our story this morning, and that is that sometimes in life, things are not the way they appear. Right? Sometimes down is actually up. So Joseph has gone from a favorite son status to being thrown into an empty pit where he was going to be left for dead, and then becoming a slave in Egypt. And now he's in a, a prison house in Egypt. And an Egyptian prison in 1500 BC was a, a terrible place to be. Psalm 105, in fact, describes for us a little about what it was like. It says, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters. So he's, he's got uh, irons that are chained to the ground, um, and his neck was put in a collar of iron. But he didn't stay that way for very long. Because as the story goes on, we read this. But the Lord was with Joseph, right? So we, it's, it's almost like you can't keep a good man down, right? But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Uh, by the way, there is uh, a strong belief that the keeper of the prison is Potiphar. If you look at how he's described earlier in the story, and some scholars believe that this is Potiphar, so Potiphar has Joseph put in a prison that he oversees. But the Lord was with him. God is with Joseph, protecting him not from difficult circumstances, but in the midst of difficult circumstances. Going on in verse 22, and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. So there we go again. He's, he's successful again. Whatever was done, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him succeed. And so everyone can see that God is with Joseph. Joseph can see it. Potiphar can see it. The keeper of the prison, who maybe Potiphar can see it, the prisoners can see it. And the result is that once again, um, he is successful and he's placed in charge of all the, all the prisoners. And, and we'll continue the story next week, but I want to just kind of wrap it up by asking the, you know, the so what question. So what does this mean for Joseph and what does this have to do with us some 3,500 years later? And, and I want to go back and say what I said a, a few minutes ago, and that is that things are not always as they seem. It's been described in, in Joseph's story that it's a continual going down. If you go back and start in, in chapter 37, you have uh, Joseph who is, uh, this in, has this favored status who goes down into a pit and then later it says he goes down into Egypt and then he goes down into slavery and now he goes down, it says down into a prison. But I would argue that actually God is moving Joseph not down and down, but closer and closer and closer to a place that he would never be able to get to any other way. God is moving him close, closer and closer to Pharaoh or the king of Egypt. 
God first relocates him to Egypt, which would not have been possible for him as a Hebrew to go there um, and to live there. He, He puts him into an important household where connections are made, probably connections that follow with him into prison. And again, you might be saying, well, how's prison a good move? But as we'll see next week, Prison allows some networking, if you will, on Joseph's part that is going to lead to him actually being in this God-ordained situation where he stands before Pharaoh. And I would argue that for a Hebrew, the only way to get there was to take the low road. But it's vital that Joseph live with integrity all along the way. And that's the thing that I want to talk about as we wrap this up. It's this importance of living with integrity in every part of life. I I come up with kind of a big idea for each one of these sermons to take away. And and the one I had for this week was that whatever life brings, do the right thing, right? Whatever it brings, whatever situation you are in, whatever, just just do the right thing. This is God's will for you. This week was tough because I kind of had two big ideas. And I, uh, so I'm going to share both of them. Uh, The second one is this. It's kind of the same thing, but it's this. Have integrity in all matters because it all matters. That's pretty good, right? I, yeah. <laughs> thank you. No, please, thank you. <laughs> the point is simple. Wherever you are, whatever you're facing, just do the right thing. If it's a big thing, do the right thing. If it's a small thing, do the right thing. If it's easy, do the right thing. If it's hard, if it's going to cost you, right? It's all the same. Just do the right thing. Because integrity matters. And integrity today, even when it appears that it will set you back, even when it appears that doing the thing with integrity today means you might end up in prison, it is God's way forward for you. I don't know God's specific will for each one of you, but I do know his general will, and that is always doing the the thing of integrity because this is always God's path forward for all of us. Now, I say that because Joseph, from a human point of view, it feels like Joseph is in a, in a no-win situation, right? Just from the outside, from humans looking on, because if he gives in to Mrs. Potiphar, if he gives in to her, then he will be sinning against God, and in sinning against God, he will compromise in his, his integrity and possibly lose the whole rest of the story because of what he's done. On the other hand, if he doesn't give in to Mrs. Potiphar, he may be giving up from a human perspective his opportunity to move forward in the situation. And in fact, he may even end up losing his life. That would be the most obvious thing in that culture. And the irony again is that Joseph is the most faithful person in the story, the person with the most integrity, and yet he's the one who ends up in prison. And it seems unfair, and I would just say, and it is unfair, But see, Joseph understands that his story is is more than his story. It's not just about him. In the same way that your story is not just about you. And that's why we don't simply make decisions based on what's easiest. Because it's not just about us. And sometimes when when we are faced with difficult choices like, like Joseph, sometimes it might feel to you like the easy way out The easy way out would involve compromise, compromising your integrity. Like maybe you're in a difficult situation and you think to yourself, I could just tell a little lie and I'll be out of here. Never happen? But if I tell the truth, right, it's it's, it's jail, so to speak. Like it's not going to go well. Sometimes when we're in a difficult situation, it feels like, well, if I just cheat, right, then I'll get out of here. I get out, I'll get, we can move on. I really can't afford to fail this test. I'll just cheat. It's one little test, just one test. It's not my, my whole GPA. Or maybe if I just bend the rules or, or maybe if I give in to sexual immorality or if I just, maybe if I just go along with the crowd, it'll be so much easier. And then, you know, God will forgive me and we can get on and all that stuff. Sometimes the right path is the hard path. Sometimes the right path that God has for us is going to cost us something. But Joseph isn't making decisions based on what will make my life easier today. In fact, I would just say that Joseph's decisions don't have anything to do with today. He's not even thinking about today. He's asking the question, what will honor God? And, and, and what will show faith? And what will bless other people? Here's what he knows. He knows that when he chooses a sinful path, it's not just that it won't be good for him. It won't be good for anyone around him. He'll lose the ability to be a blessing. He wants to stay on the path 
that God has for him. And that means always doing the right thing. It means never, never tiring of doing the good thing, the right thing. If it sounds familiar, it's because the New Testament is full of verses that encourage us to do this. In Galatians 6, 9, and 10, it says, let us not grow weary. That's a good word there. Weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially those who are in the household of faith. Don't grow weary of doing the good thing, the right thing. When you're going through a difficult time, don't grow weary. When you can't see any good results yet, don't grow weary. Keep doing good. Keep doing the right thing. Keep doing the moral thing. Right? Keep blessing the people around you at all times. When it's easy, do it. When it's hard, do it. Right? Why? Because this is the path of God's will for you. Again, this is one thing I know for you. This is God's will. That you do the right thing. That you do the good thing. Don't grow weary. Don't grow weary as a spouse. Maybe, maybe you're feeling a little weary as a spouse today. If you are, don't look at your spouse. That's rude. But you know, like maybe you're just like, it's, I feel like I'm working hard and I don't feel like I'm getting, I'm waiting for the benefit. Keep doing good. Maybe it's a parent, right? Maybe it's, a little, maybe it's getting a little bit hard right now and it's a little difficult. In fact, I actually had several discussions after the last sermon with parents who were like, I, yeah, it feels, it's really getting hard. Sometimes parents will come to me and go, Pastor, this is the hardest thing I've done in my whole life. I've never been pressed and pushed and prodded. This is so hard. And my response is usually, I know. And they're only 18 months old, you know? So it's like, it's, you know, don't, don't grow tired of doing good. As a student, don't grow tired as an employee, as an employer, as a friend in serving other people and sharing the gospel. Don't grow weary of doing good. Whatever life brings, do the right thing. Even if it's difficult, even if you're in prison, even if you're unemployed or underemployed or single or married with kids or without kids or dealing with illness or whatever it is. Again, we read this again and again in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 3, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And I tell you this because when I was working on this series, when I got to this passage, I thought, well, we, probably some of us can relate to this. I find in the last two years, a lot of people have shared with me how they have gotten weary over the last two years. Just weary, just tired. Tired of all the social upheaval. Tired of all the friction in our, in our society. Uh, tired of fighting over mandates and masks and vaccines and politics. Right? It's easy to get weary of that stuff. I get it. We've grown tired of, of conflict. I've had people say, I'm just tired of, of, the, of the challenge of gathering with other believers. I've had people say that, like, either I come to church and then I, they're wearing masks or they're not, or they're doing this or doing that. It's so hard. It's so, it's so difficult. What does he say? Don't grow weary of doing good. Scripture is very clear. Gathering together with the believers is a very good thing we're commanded to do. Don't grow weary of serving other people. I know sometimes you might feel like, but it's so much work. And it costs me so much to serve people. And they rarely say thank you. And it's so hard. Don't grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary of sacrificing for the sake of the gospel, even when the future feels uncertain. And I find sometimes that that's true for us. We feel like, well, I, I would give more and I would serve more and I would bless more, but I'm not sure about the future. And that's what makes me kind of hold back. Can I just say this? That through Jesus, our future is rock solid, absolutely guaranteed. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us, when we place our faith in him, all of our sins are forgiven. And they will never, ever, ever, ever be held against us. It means that we are righteous. We are now right in our relationship with God. And there's no condemnation for God's people. We become children of God. We have the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and works in us and leads us and empowers us. And it tells us we have the providential work of God in our lives, right? That God is working all things, all things, everything for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We have this rock solid assurance that our future is grand, that is beautiful, that we have eternal life in Christ. Eternal life where there'll be no more sin, no more temptation, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, that we'll have eternal joy in the presence of God and that all of our sacrifices will be absolutely more than worth it. But sometimes, sometimes we forget that we were created to live forever. We forget that. I came across an uh, infographic this week that's kind of interesting. I know you won't 
probably be able to read this, or maybe you can if your eyes are better than mine. But um, it was this study that was done this last year on how long uh, animals live. And it's kind of interesting. It just really kind of brought this to the forefront for me. So it kind of starts down here. It says a house mouse lasts, it lives about a year. Thank goodness it's not longer than that. Uh, dogs, dogs on average live about 13 years, right? So I know some of you uh, over the last few years, actually quite a few of you have lost a dog, a pet that you had for maybe 13 or, or years or even more, and that was a big loss to lose it, right? And you probably thought, like I have, it, it, it isn't even fair. It, it must be a result of the fall that cats outlive dogs. There's something absolutely not right with that, right? And so, but you know what I'm saying, and, and, it, and it makes you think like, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to live a long time. Like, a, a dog's only lived 13 years. You got grizzly bears, right? They're about 15 years, go up a little bit. You got polar bears around 25 years. That's pretty good, uh, right? The uh, American, American alligator, about 50 years, and uh, um, uh, then you go up a little bit farther, and then there's us. So right now, they say, on average, male and female lumped in together, you can live about 79 years. So for some of you, you know, you're like, oh man, that's like an eternity. I'm going to live forever. And some of you are looking at your watches. <laughs> oh no, 79 years, right? And then how fair is this? Like a, a Galapagos tortoise lives about 100 years. A bowhead whale lives about 200 years, right? A whale, let's think about that for a minute. 200 years, but that's not even, right? We a Greenland shark, about 272. And then we get down to things like a giant barrel sponge, 2,300 years? Like, think about that. Actually, there's a thing called an immortal jellyfish that, um, as far as they know, it never dies. It just keeps uh, reproducing its cells, and it just lives on forever. But when, I, when I'm reading this, it reminds me, especially when I'm looking down at, you know, SpongeBob SquarePants on here, 2,300 years, I'm like, my life's kind of short, right? 79 years is kind of short. It goes by fairly quick. And yet the choices we make in this little time that we live will last for eternity. The choices that we make today will last for eternity. They are, they are bigger than our lives today. This is something that Joseph understands and it drives everything that he does. Let us live today. Let us make choices today with eternity in mind because that really literally is what is at stake. This is what Joseph knows. It's why we call the series It's Beyond Me. Because Joseph's story was not about Joseph. It was about something more. And our stories are not simply about us. It's about something far more. This is really illustrated for me uh, last night. Last night, my wife and I uh, went over to uh, Portland to uh, McMinimins. We had rented a big room and we got together. Uh, my wife has three younger brothers in the middle of those brothers, Tim. Uh, is turning uh, 50 uh, tomorrow. Uh, he's born in leap year. And so we got together to celebrate his birthday and his retirement party. And I know you'd be like, wow, it'd be, that would be awesome to have a retirement party when I turn 50. But the reason he's having a retirement party is that uh, he has stage four lung cancer. And um, so we really saw this as an opportunity to get together and both celebrate him. Um, over the years, he's been uh, a teacher, uh, an administrator, a uh, principal, and so he has a lot of friends in the educational world and family as well. And so 120 of us gathered together last night. Uh, we had to limit it to 120 because that's all we had room for. And basically we had some food and then people just shared for hours about um, how, how Tim's integrity has blessed them. He is a guy just who has made the right choices, the God-honoring choices all along the way. And I, I would imagine I was just kind of watching him last night as he's listening to people share, people he loves and cares for. Some of them were believers, some were not. And person after person got up and shared stories. And what was actually kind of fun was some people would say, let me tell you a little story about Tim. And then let me tell you what happened later that Tim probably doesn't even know about. And so he got to hear about how some of the choices and the, the ways that he blessed people. And that's really what people said again and again and again. Tim's like the other guy, not the guy driving down the road with everything falling out of the back of his truck. He's the guy who just leaves every situation better than when he walked into it. 
And so people were just sharing, you know, Tim, here's how you impacted me. Here's how you changed me. Here's how you changed our school, our district. How, here's how you impacted my marriage, my kids. Yeah. See, because your life isn't just about you. Your life is about more than you. I would even say it's not primarily about you. God has surrounded you with people that you have the opportunity to bless and to serve. And this is Joseph, right? Because Joseph, eventually, he's going he's to bless his family. And he's going to bless the entire nation of Egypt. And he's going to bless Israel. And 3,500 years later, here we are talking about him. And he's blessing us. He had no idea. No idea what those good choices were going to result in. And the same thing is true for you and me. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. And then uh, we're going to just close with a quick song to just give back to God. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we thank you. Uh, this morning for the story of Joseph and we thank you for the fact that again we're reminded that you are with us at all times and all things and for those that love you for those that have been called according to your purpose everything absolutely everything you will work for our good that's what you do and you have called us to do something that isn't that hard it's just to make the right choices. It's just to do the thing of integrity. It's just to trust you in all things and to make those decisions when it's, when it's easy, when it's hard, when it's little, when it's big. And Father, we would do that because we both love you and what you've done for us and we know that our lives are not our own. We have been bought with a great price. We belong to you. And we want to live in a way that honors you. And we know that a big part of the way we do that is to live with integrity and so bless the people around us. Not just the people in our home, our neighborhood, our community. But sometimes even people we never meet face to face. That we would be a blessing. That in all situations, we would do the thing of integrity. The right thing. So that you can take it and use it and bless it and multiply it. And Father, we may or may not in this life have the chance like Tim to sit down in a room and hear people share about how they've been blessed by us. But we know one day those stories will be shared. And I pray that when that day comes, there will be many of them. And we will be both amazed and so grateful that you would use us in that way. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.